I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk about the latest trends with COVID-19 and the Delta variant. We're going to talk about some good news after last week's conversation with April Heipel about the moratorium on evictions. We're also going to talk about what's going on in New York State with their governor and possible impeachment plans. And then later on the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges, who are the authors of a brand new book called Better Capitalism. So stay tuned. It's a good episode. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. It's season two, and we're still talking about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. This season of the Raceless Gospel has eight episodes, eight podcast church services, The doors of this church are open, and we're going to talk about the sticks and stones we carry faithfully that break the skin and bones of Christ's body. And on each episode, we're joined by those who bring perspective and insight as to how we set these broken bones and perhaps make things right. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, eight episodes. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we discuss the church in North America's bodywork. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, I'm getting beat down by COVID-19, but guess what? COVID-19 don't care. It really doesn't care. So the only silver lining that I'm seeing right now is that masks are available and they're on clearance. So if you need to stock up on masks, they're like 70% off. And um, I just keep buying them. There was this, a span there where I sort of stopped. I was like, okay, like maybe we can just right. wash these, put them in the sun. No, I think I think the masks are here to stay. Yeah, Big news this week uh, out of Washington, D.C., Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina uh, announced that he had COVID-19 after having the vaccine. And he released a statement saying very, very clearly he was so thankful that he had the vaccine because his symptoms are mild. We're hearing that from our friends and colleagues who are having these breakthrough cases, uh, who have been vaccinated, who now are contracting the disease. Uh, or the virus, and they're saying, you know, they they don't feel well, but it could be so much worse. The problem, obviously, is we are getting more and more people who are unvaccinated filling up the ICUs. Uh, Here in the state of Oklahoma, it was announced uh, this week that down in Falls Creek, which is a huge Baptist encampment for teenagers throughout the summer. Aren't you banned from Falls Creek? Hey, that is another story for another time. (laughs) But yes, I am officially banned from Falls Creek. I can no, I cannot walk through the doors of uh, Falls Creek, but I wear that badge with pride. Uh, But there was an evangelist down there uh, who was very healthy at the time uh, and didn't know it, I guess, at the time. There's speculation that he did that but nobody knows for sure but came in contact with thousands and thousands of children down there when he preached and there were cases that uh, uh, kids were coming back home uh, getting positive covid uh, test and he went back home uh, again from what we understand a very healthy person and he died uh, days later i hadn't heard about that 
Yeah, he's from Alabama, and just, I mean, really, really shocking story. I was going to say, I'm from a town in Texas that has about 4,000 people. It's a really small town. Like, I graduated with 63 people, and I know of at least three people who are in their 30s who are on life support right now. Oh, my Didn't gosh. get the vaccine. COVID is just running rampant. Really Josh is. and I, uh, my husband, we met at a church camp, uh, since we're going to talk about church camps, and uh, <laughs> we were mom and dad of a small group, and one of our... our uh, our group members passed away um, over the weekend. His wife is due with their third baby in like two weeks. And uh, I mean, he's 30, 31. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was just heartbreaking. Yeah. This pastor was in his 40s. Uh, his name was Reverend Wade Morris uh, from Alabama. And, uh, you know, just, just, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, you know, I've got a column out today uh, on Thursday of this week that just is begging people to get vaccinated, that it is, it doesn't devalue your faith. Uh, you know, it's something that we are called to do as Christians. It's not the mark of the beast. It is not the mark of the beast. Um, that, uh, that this, I mean, I, I don't want you to die. I mean, it's as simple as that. I may disagree with you theologically. I may disagree with you politically, but please believe me when I say, I don't want you to die. Please I may want to put you in a headlock, but I don't <laughs> want you to die. There you go. Uh, that, that is very, very well said. Well, there's some good news coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, on the hills of our interview with uh, Food and Shelter uh, for Friends Executive Director April Heipel last week talking about homelessness. Um, the uh, the Biden administration announced that they are extending the moratorium on evictions, and this is this is a tough one. I mean, it really is. I don't want anybody to get evicted. Uh, you know, I want people to have a place to live, but I also am you know sympathetic to those homeowners uh, who are you know, who own the homes, who may not be getting rents. I mean, they're going to have to make some difficult decisions as well. But from what I'm hearing is that there is relief money available to make mm -hmm. all of this happen. It's just not getting where it needs to get. And so we need a better distribution system uh, or education system and distribution system to make certain that people are getting the funds, the homeowners who are landlords and the renters uh, who are needing a place to live until the economy gets back on its feet and yeah. uh, they can find a job with a living wage, not, uh, not a job that's just going to pay them minimum wage that they can't pay their rent, but a job that really gives them an opportunity to, to live like they need to be. Yeah. And uh, staying over on the East Coast, we've got a very naughty New York governor. We do. Governor Cuomo uh, was released this week by the Attorney General of New York City that uh, their findings is that uh, he did indeed uh, commit multiple uh, violations of sexual harassment. And Autumn, I think this is a no-brainer. The governor needs to resign. Mm -hmm. He does. And, you know, this is us being, it's a, a bipartisan situation. We have called for, you know, sexual harassers on either side of the aisle when this is brought to light that there needs to be justice. And so I completely agree. He needs to step down and make way for someone who doesn't abuse their power. 100%.
And so I, I hope that, uh, that he comes to his senses and realizes this is the best thing for the state of New York, but also to be an example for others. Well, Autumn, you and I sat down with two wonderful gentlemen this week, the authors of the book, Better Capitalism, Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges. And it's a fascinating book. Now, I know what some of our listeners are thinking. Oh, Autumn and Mitch have lost their ever-loving mind. They're going to talk 20 minutes about economics with two econs. That's not the case. This book really does a great job of fusing theology and economics together, and it really is a fascinating uh, interview. It's a great book that we want to encourage you to pick up. Uh, it really is a social justice book in every sense of the word, so it's, it's really well done. So uh, stay tuned for that interview, and uh, we'll see you on the flip side. I'm Jenna. I'm Ashley. And we are Reverends. Revs on the road. Hop in the car with us and come along for the ride. As we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. We travel the country. From the comfort of our place in Dallas for now. And catch up with beautiful people doing God's work advocating for disability rights, healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse, promoting mental health and the power of community, integrating spirituality and art, working for racial justice, and so much more. We've got red light rants, pit stops, and detours. Faith is a journey, and we're on it. So ride along with us, The Revs, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we are very excited about our guests today. Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges have training and experience with one foot squarely in the world of business and the other squarely in the world of faith. They find that these two communities can be bridged for the immense benefit of both. Their new book, Better Capitalism, explores the possibility of moving from a plantation economy to an economy of partnership. Paul and Aaron, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks so much. We're very, very pleased to be here. So, Aaron, you are coming to us live from uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. And, Paul, where are you located? I am in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, Atlanta, one of our favorite places to visit. we got a lot of uh, employees at Good Faith Media who reside in Atlanta and Macon, so one of our favorite cities. So, And we do like Knoxville, too, Aaron, just by the way. So. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. The idea of writing a book about economics and faith is intriguing, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know about your experiences um, that led you to this endeavor. Sure, great question. I'll uh, I'll jump in there first. It's interesting to hear that you guys have a lot of contacts in Atlanta. Uh, that's where Paul and I initially met. Uh, we were both at the uh, theology school of McAfee, which is part of Mercer University there in Atlanta. And so that was where he and I uh, met each other and began sharing ideas and, and dreaming up projects. Uh, in my case, particularly, I was doing an MBA program at Mercer's business school as well as an MDiv program at Mercer's Theology School. And so within the same day, I would, and it just, they're a few feet apart from each other across a bit of sidewalk. 
And so, you know, day by day, I would have maybe spiritual formation and then marketing or, <laughs> you know, Sermon on the Mount and accounting. Uh, and you could go on on pastoral care and then corporate governance, but all just back to back. And it really uh, just began to strike me how much each of those has to offer, how good each is in its own right, but especially how much potential there is for collaboration between what, in that case, are literally two different buildings, but often are treated as two different worlds. Um, they, they seem so walled off from each other in our thinking, in our conversation. Um, and so that, that was kind of the beginning for me, at least, was like, how do, how do these come together well? And, and how can we actually be part of making them come together well? Uh, it was literally two different buildings on campus, <laughs> day by day, trying to be in both of them somehow. For me, the process that Aaron went through was similar. It just took much longer. Uh, I did not grow up in the church, uh, although I've always been on an active spiritual journey. My intentional faith journey really kind of coincided with the start of my career, and it developed uh, within the context of the marketplace, Right. Uh, early on, I was a draftsman, and I had uh, I could put in earbuds and listen to a Christian radio. I could listen to uh, I went through the Bible on even that back then cassette tapes. Right, I, I literally grew my faith uh, while working. So, so for me, professional growth and faith development they happened hand in hand, um, if you will. The, the virtues and values that I was learning on the faith side, on the faith side. I honed on the marketplace side. So until the two halves just simply merged. Um, for me, my lived experience is that economics and faith, they naturally coexist. Uh, maybe as a person new in the faith, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't yet know they weren't supposed to come together, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was supposed to keep those two apart. I was supposed to know what filthy lucre meant, but, but that just yeah. wasn't the case. I, right. I grew into it naturally, I think, as part of that spiritual journey, frankly. Uh, so in my view, it really takes more effort to separate and compartmentalize economics and, and faith than it does to have them uh, uh, coexist, um, happily coexist, I would say. Well, both of your experiences are phenomenal, and it brought you together to uh, release this new book, Better Capitalism, and it is outstanding. Uh, I got a copy of it right here, worked through it uh, the last week or so, and it's very well done. You can find it at uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, any other outlet uh, where you buy books, but it's, it's just really well done, bringing theology and economics together. So let's jump into the book for just a moment, and talk about this concept of plantation economy. You define it as any human construct that creates or permits inequalities in support of plantation economics. Now, for our audience and for me, who is a simpleton, by the way, explain what you mean by plantation economics. Thanks, Mitch. Uh, it's maybe the best way I can share that is through a story or even two stories, and they're short stories but part of that lived experience that I had in the workplace. Uh, I was a young associate, um, an attorney, uh, and a young associate when we were at the annual retreat for the firm. The managing partner had met with a number of us and had just given us the happy news that we're going to get a raise. If you're at all familiar with how it works in the law firm or many other sort of kind of operations like this, that's great. You get the raise, and that means you get to work more hours to generate the money that's going to pay for that raise. 
Also, the uh, partners have decided that they wanted to see more, more profit themselves. Uh, one of the uh, unfortunate horse races in the legal profession is the, uh, the, the ratings of profits per partner. And many partner and firms want to be at the top of that list, which means your associate get to work harder. So um, I was fairly new to that firm and uh, decided that I was not going to engage in the conversation that was going on at that moment with the associates now asking the partner, how are we going to have a work-life balance? How, how, how are we going to work even more hours and, and kind of keep sanity? Uh, and the managing partner, you know, volleyed the first couple of questions. And then finally, in a bit of exasperation, he just exhaled and said, look, the practice of law is a plantation system, and you're all very well paid. That shut down that conversation. Yeah, and, and that phrase was stuck in my mind since. Uh, and that's almost how we opened the book is with that story. But, but we do a deeper dive, you know, and explain what that really means. Um, plantation system. I experienced it uh, also um, when witnessing a, a law firm, a, a law firm sort of start to implode. And one of the problems that was happening right then is the associates uh, were being just lured away by uh, an expansion in the legal profession at the time. And we were getting uh, offers to, to just go across the street for an additional you know, $20,000 or so. Um, the, this meant sort of a battle at the partnership level about how to keep the associates from, from, from leaving, just being lured away. Mm -hmm. And one of the partners said, you know, we're not going to increase salaries in order to keep them. They're FBUs. So FBUs, not a phrase I learned in law school, but come to turn out later, um, learned out very quickly. That's an abbreviation for fungible billing unit. So fungible billing unit that means you are just a cognitive machine and and your person the person that you are just doesn't matter to this particular mm -hmm. operation or in fact really just maybe just to this particular partner who said that right, right. but but um th that gives you a sense of what plantation operations are like it's the exploitation of someone or something because it's a zero-sum game mentality, right? It is for whatever the motivation is, it is you must lose in order for me to win. Um, if we step back a bit, we look at the big picture, we've got to acknowledge that much of the way we do business exploits either the environment or each other. Um, for example, it's easier to become a billionaire when you have a large operation and don't pay all the employees a living wage, or you do other things that shift cost of the operation onto others. Uh, you pollute and you don't have pollution controls on on the um on your operation that is a phrase economists uh use they, they call it externalizing you get to externalize the cost of your operation well the neighbors may not want to be externalized you know for, with your output um but but th these are the sort of things that we do to exploit each other and 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 that simply has to end right That's and that leads easy. that leads to uh even another concept that you mentioned ownership society so you recall the story of john bogle creator of index funds you quoted him um, as saying our ownership society is gone and will not return our agency society has failed to serve its principles as corporate managers alike have placed their own interest above the interests of the beneficiaries and owners. It's time to begin the world anew and build a fiduciary society in which stewardship is our our talisman. How has ownership society failed? Now, before you answer this question, this is re this was really an intriguing section for me personally. 
uh, because I am Muskogee Creek, part of uh, Native American ancestry in this country. And if there's one uh, conversation that I had with my elders, it was this idea of ownership. The Native Americans could never understand that concept of ownership. So I am, I am waiting with bated breath about this answer. <laughs> All right. Well, no pressure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great question, and I appreciate the context, Mitch. Because uh, one, I think one just clarification, maybe uh, in Bogle's quote, he doesn't say that ownership society failed. He says ownership society is gone. It's it's simply right. being okay. in the past, okay. and agency society has failed. And both aspects of that certainly matter. Uh, what he meant by that idea of ownership is the person directly owns their enterprise. You know, it's the family farm, it's the family owned business or the individually owned business. And so the owner is directly there with direct visibility, even hands on, knowing what happens, how it's done, what works, what doesn't work, caring about the whole. And, and what Bogle says is that's that's just not reality anymore. Now, there still are some small businesses, but in terms of general influence in our society, much larger corporations clearly wield far more influence. You know, the, the Fortune 500 and that sort of thing uh, just has more resources and more sway in our world than, than small businesses at this point. So that's what he means by the ownership society is gone. It, not in a sense of total extinction, but it it is just less influential then this new thing of agency society. So an agency society, well, there are boards at these big companies. And in theory, they are the agents of the owners. So we're all shareholders, even if you don't own individual stocks, somebody that you work for or your company has mutual funds that are owners of these companies. We all own them at some level, but we don't know what's going on there. You know, We haven't met the staff. We haven't looked at the operations, looked at the books. You know, we are relying on agents, namely the board members, to supposedly act on our behalf. Board members are supposed to serve shareholders and supervise even the CEO, much less other staff, so that the company is run for the benefit of the owners, uh, including shareholders. And we'll talk more about not just shareholders, but at least the shareholders. Uh, and basically, that doesn't work. And that's what the quote was on to say. Inevitably, the agents are tempted by self-interest and they decide, hey, I like being a high paid board member. I'm not going to rock the boat. I want to stay on the board. <laughs> you know? right. And so they do things that keep them in a position of benefit rather than seeking benefit for the actual owners, the shareholders. Uh, and it's a real challenge. And, and so then when Bogle goes on to say, we need a fiduciary society. We need people that don't just act as agents in theory, but act in good faith, fiduciary. Uh, truly in good faith of those they represent. Uh, and none of that is easy. I think it's the right concept. And we try to go, Bogle's talking about investing. So he was really focused on mutual funds and investment firms. Of course, he founded Vanguard, which put this into practice in a very powerful way. But we're really trying to think about the whole economy. So to use Paul's example again, if you are a partner, and you can note the irony of that term partner at a law firm that operates in the way he described uh, but, you know, not being an agent in theory for your employees, but being a fiduciary with them, operating in good faith, not calling them FBUs behind the scenes, 
but really working for their benefit as well as the firm's benefit. Uh, that's the idea of, of what Bogle's talking about. Ownership is not bad. It's just not what has sway in our world right now. What I love about the book is that you seem to be advocating from a move away from an ownership society to more of a... Um, a, a caring society, someone, you know, a society where you're mutually responsible for everything that's going on. A stewardship society is, is what I'm thinking of. And I think you actually use that term stewardship. And so that leads to this partnership economic or economics that you're talking about. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is a partnership economy? Mitch, at its most fundamental level. It's the shift, exactly as you're alluding to, the, the, the shift that probably your elders would advocate for. It's it's shift from the view of a shareholder supremacy. That is, everything's done with the goal of maximizing shareholder value it's to the view of mutuality, where it's we're all in this together, and we all do better when we each do better. It is the difference between just a perception of dog eat dog versus a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, we're all, you know, it's an object lesson. We're all on this same planet together. We're not all on our own individual planets. We have to learn how to work together. It's just, it's, it's patently obvious, as, as us patent attorneys will say, that this is clear. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's what we're doing uh, sometimes now is akin to um, perhaps us being all on a boat, there's a leak, and those who are extraordinarily privileged climb to the top of the mast and yell down, hey, your bottom of the boat is leaking. That, that's, that is just it's foolish, right? In the, it, just, just to think about, it. we're in this boat together, and we do need to learn this stewardship. We do need to learn this mutuality. There, are, there is enough for all of us um, to, to fulfill our needs, to take care of our needs, even some of our wants but not enough to take care of the um, desires, uh, unsatisfied desires of even a small minority of us. You know, what's really interesting to me about that answer and about this concept of partnership uh, economy is that you look out, you look through history and uh, you can even look at certain parts of the world today and see there has historically been a tribal mentality within history. You see that even in the Bible uh, with the Hebrews and ancient Israel, and the tribes. Uh, you see it in North America with the Native Americans. Uh, you see it in other parts of the world. When I travel to Africa, you see a very tribal presence, and the economy really is driven by the tribe and what you're contributing to community. That all seemed to change when Europeans started crossing the ocean and coming to this land, and it became more centered around the individual. Do you think this idea of moving from tribal to individual caused this plantation mentality? And do you see a shifting back to a tribal uh, uh, partnership mentality uh, because community, especially for this emerging generation, is so important. That's a huge question, Paul. You mind if I take the first shot at it here? Okay. My pleasure. I'll be thinking about my response. <laughs> yeah. That's my job around here, Aaron, to ask the big questions. <laughs> well, that's uh, well, we love that. We wanted to. Uh, we feel it's an ambitious book, and uh, 
not every response is favorable, but that's okay. We, we want to start conversation on something that matters this much. Um, in terms of the tribalism, uh, certainly there's been a shift yeah, in the Enlightenment and European culture toward individualism that's prominent in America's founding as well. Uh, and, and not always helpful. I mean, it's a mixed bag. There are trade-offs. Um, and what's really interesting in the, the idea of partnership, and we draw heavily on Jesus' teaching on this, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I think one of the big problems with individualism is that it almost forces you to choose either the other or yourself. And, and both sides of that are unhelpful. They're destructive in their way. Uh, there are views out there, where, you know, Paul referenced doggy dog, just self only, only pursue the self. That's all you need to give attention to. And there are also some, maybe in the Christian world especially, that try to be so selfless that it's destructive. You know, they, they lose sight of that as yourself part of Jesus ethic, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so I do think that's just a fundamental flaw in individualism is it, it is too narrow. Uh, so having a tribe is better than having an individual. Uh, at the same time, I would say tribalism is maybe too small. And so that becomes destructive when our tribe and your tribe are now in conflict as opposed to, as Paul said, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> and we can't just say your part of the boat is sinking because it's the same boat that we are also on. And um, I think that's what we're trying to point to, again, with partnership in that total sense, whether you're thinking about it individually or tribally, whatever your group happens to be, operate in a way that's mutually beneficial. Yes, benefit for your group, absolutely. Have profit, have benefit. Do it in ways that also work well for those you interact with. And to put a little bit of a point on that, um, I think one of the tribes that's easiest to disparage, including in economics, is the 1%. And we hear a lot of uh, vitriol, right, about the 1%. And so our bigger tribe of the 99% really loves to get on board about bashing the 1%. But if we really, I think, want to be serious about partnership, we have to remember that 1% is a dehumanizing term. It's kind of like an FBU. You know, those are also people that God has made and that God loves and that ultimately we, we need to be loving those neighbors as ourselves. And they need to but be Aaron, sometimes they build a rocket and go into space. <laughs> they and it's do. just really wasteful. <laughs> it is. That's right. The <laughs> things that people do can be incredibly destructive. The yes. people who do them are people. Made. I hear what you're saying, though. Yes. But so that's that's where it's hard, right? There, are, even in tribalism, there's always that other group, you know, that we can really get excited to bash. But if if we really want to partner, that's uh, it's everybody, you know. Yeah, and, and it I, will work best when everybody is uh, at least endeavoring in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like you're you're talking about like a micro tribalism versus a macro tribalism, and you know, micro tribalism is that we have uh, like. In my ancestry, we have tribes in Muskogee Creek, we've got Cherokee, we've got Choctaw. Uh, in a sense, we're taking, you know, we're making certain we take care of our tribal members. But there's a macro tribalism that understands we are part of this greater creation and that we, it's a symbiotic existence that we all live in. And therefore, while, you know, there's tensions within tribes, we often understand, acknowledge our own humanity and our place within humanity and the larger ecosystem that we all live in. So I think it's very well said. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. 
So changing gears just a little bit, another concept that you all mentioned in the book is homo economicus or homo economics, human economics. You claim that humans are not walking calculators. What does that mean? Sure, also a great question. I mean, for a long time, economics was done you know, in the classical model, you know, as if all of us people were purely rational beings, and we always thought about everything that we did. And, and we had all the information, and we knew perfectly how to process and interpret it, and then we would act on that information and right interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, of course, very flattering, too. Um, it happens to not be true. <laughs> and more recently, economics, there's a whole field now called behavioral economics, behavioral finance, things like this, that just take into account the realities of human behavior. It's not nearly so flattering, but I think ultimately it's more helpful. And it talks about things like ignorance, uncertainty, confusion. Uh, we just don't know everything. <laughs> and even if we do know some things, we're not always certain about what they mean, much less how to act on them. Um, and just for example, nobody in their right mind would say out loud, hey, paying 30% interest because I wanted to go clothes shopping is a good idea. Mm. Yet our society as a whole has massive amounts of credit card debt. You know, so we, we know that's not great, but we do it anyway. <laughs> uh, kind of like billionaires blasting into space. We, we swipe our cards and then don't pay the balance and end up paying more. Um, so it's, it's not flattering, but it just means that part of the human reality as pertains to money is it's messy. Right. And if we can acknowledge that, maybe we can, can make real change as opposed to just theoretical ideals that, that I, don't hit. What I money. loved about this section, Aaron, was that it was as though it's hard to put a value on uh, a financial decision that you make in your life. And let me give you an example of that, because when I read through this, there was an example of my own life that just leapt off the page. And that was 10 years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to dig a big hole in the back of our yard and call it a swimming pool. We call it affectionately the worst and best financial decision that we ever made because we recognize <laughs> we recognize that it's not going to add any value to the home. It's, you know, it it is what it is. Um and we spent a lot of money on it, but here was the best financial or best economic decision we made. I had teenage sons and they were in my backyard throughout their high school career and their friends were now with them away as adults, now we're able to have Autumn's children and you know, our friends' children come over and enjoy the pool. It's hard to put a value on that kind of investment that you make. And so when I read this, and I'm not a human calculator, yeah, it didn't make sense. Financially, it didn't make sense for us to do that. But the value that we have gained from that over the last decade was insurmountable. I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's such a great example of, yeah, economics in a more robust sense, you know, just a little broader view. Yeah. Now, one of the major themes throughout this book, and doggone it, you tried to bring theology and economics together, which you did brilliantly. You stated in the book, too often economics and theology are treated as unrelated. Now, why do you think these two disciplines need to be partnered together? But before you answer that, why do you think that they've been separated for so long? From my perspective, and my uh, hopefully my Lloyd Allen, my church history professor, won't be embarrassed by my my historical answers here. It's just there's this, been this separation, this concept about economics from the, from the church perspective, that it is um, 
filthy lucre, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's it is part of the um, split society. Is part of the split world that we live in. The physical is different than the religious and the spiritual. And this is the earthly things we don't want to deal with. We want to focus just on the spiritual and the religious. Um, but, but so that's a false dichotomy. That's a false split. So we. We've turned away from our understanding of of money. We we've ignored, I think, to a great extent, the economic lessons in in the Bible. Um, uh, very quickly, Psalm fifty uh, ten, right? God owns all of the cattle on the hill. Th- that is an economic statement. He is the 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 cattle and and other uh, animals were the the commerce of the times. That's how you made exchanges. Very often there was. Money was evolving, of course, but you know we did our sacrifices. To sacrifice a bull was to basically total your, you know, your Lexus, and and that's an economic loss. We 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 don't understand, I think, a lot of times the the economic perspectives and the lessons throughout throughout Scripture, and 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 they're not. Maybe that's just it. It's part of the confusion around the fact that we live in an economic world every exchange from a dating couple as as uh aaron has pointed out to the un is it's everything there's an economic aspect to all of it It doesn't have to take primacy in our lives but it's a part of our lives you know uh, founder sojourner jim wallace used to say that uh budgets are moral documents and whether Mm -hmm. that is a federal government or whether that is a family budget i think that that goes without saying it, it there is this spiritualness to it there is this moral code this ethical code when we're dealing with money and the bible does not shy away from that it talks about it quite frequently unfortunately we've gotten really good at compartmentalizing all of aspects of our life that you know here's a, here's how, what we do with uh, our economics here's what we do with our theology here's what we do with our governance and and we don't think any of them should intertwine, but the reality is they all intertwine and they all play off one another. So uh, I thought that was really interesting in the book. So you guys also tackle the problems of racism associated with inequalities. Can you briefly explain the importance of the relationship between racism and economy? My perspective influenced the writing there, and, and, and I think Aaron was, of course, congruent, but there's this concept of immutable characteristic, right? It's the things, it's the characteristics we have no control over, race, gender. Um, we carve out exceptions for religion, but I, I learned those concepts in civil liberties and law school. And, and, and for me, this idea of a mutable characteristic just solidified my, my thinking that uh, racism is a, is a false construct. But where we have it, where it exists, and, and it exists in, in throughout plantation system economics, uh, it is then a factor that's used to judge another person. And when we judge, we start to exclude, we start to shut out. So for us, we connect the dots from, from uh, um, judgment on immutable characteristics, racism, uh, gender, age, discrimination, however we want to, you know, whatever bucket we want to uh, 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 discriminate against, it, it is then we use to separate that person uh, or people. Uh, divide them, push them aside, and then exclude them from uh, from the party. In in a lot of case, economic success. That's you that's know. how we we see that. But we also see, you know, e- economic inequality in a lot of ways right now, almost 
race almost might become, or or um, um, discrimination may almost become a secondary factor. When it's about power and control, everybody after that's an FBU, right? Everybody after that is a tool to exploit. If it's about power and control. Um, and, and I think that we really, that the church really can help with, I think at this time, is the theology of enough. If we can teach a theology of enough, and, and we introduce the concept uh, in the book, and we actually have some enough, what we call enough factors, right? There's, here's, here's some reasonable numbers by which we can uh, maximize our own income, um, and maximize our own wealth. And at this point, that's enough. We, we can live very well on this amount. And now you can figure out what to do. When, when Jesus says the poor will always be among you, I often wonder, isn't that because they're how the rich learn to share? Hmm. You know, we saw this, uh, this idea of economic inequality, especially generational, up close when we visited Tulsa, Oklahoma this summer and commemorated the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, a lot of people know about the 18 hours of hell that North Tulsa went through with all of the killings and shootings. What a lot of people did not realize that we learned a lot about in our time there in Tulsa was what happened after the fact. The reason it was called the Tulsa Race Riot was for insurance purposes because the centralized part of uh, or the North Tulsa was the Black Wall Street, and it was it was incredible. Uh, they're sustainable businesses. I mean, lucrative. I mean, it was really amazing. But because they called it a race riot for insurance purposes, then when the claims started coming in, um, they were denied. And so a lot of businesses were not allowed to build back. And of course, then, you know, on top of that, redlining began to be a thing. And all of a sudden, you had this incredible community that was prospering. And because of racism, it has put into place a generational system of inequality. There was no way generational wealth was handed off to the emerging generations that were coming up behind these people. And, you know, racism really had an effect. A hundred years ago, it still has an effect. I am from Tulsa, Oklahoma, grew up there, and I've seen the poverty uh, in North Tulsa. And you just cannot convince me that that directly that direct moment where racism was at its height did not continue to, uh, to, to benefit those in power, those who had wealth, and suppress and oppress uh, the black community in Tulsa. And so, you know, I think you know, your section on racism is, is really valid and, and, and really well stated. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. And yeah, just to kind of echo what Paul said, um, we really think about this economic aspect as being you know, upstream, so to speak, of some of the other contentious social matters in our world. Uh, because until that power dynamic is addressed more at the root, including the very real economic aspect of exploitation, then you can talk about diversity all you want. But if, if we're diverse in a system that's still exploitative, we haven't really gained anything. And we need to be diverse in a system that is beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so we're really trying to get behind 
the sort of surface eruptions and, and go go more to the root if we can. Well, I'll tell you what, I could talk about this all day, but uh, this has been really, really fascinating. We appreciate uh, both of you. The book is entitled Better Capitalism, and you can buy it today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books. It's very well done. Congratulations on the book, both Aaron and Paul. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you. Yes. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell? I think we take that in two steps, right? We, we are trying to talk. We're, we're, we see ourselves as bridges talking to two ends of, 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 a, of a park. We're talking, we want to talk to the churches. We want to talk to business communities. So, uh, for, so at least to the churches, we need to, uh, we, we would like to help them bridge that Sunday-Monday gap. I don't think I've ever been in a sermon where, as attentive as I wanted to be, my mind didn't drift to what I had to do Monday morning, or what problem, what economic, there's always an economic problem, a money problem, that would come back to, to, to my thought, and I would almost have to you know, mindfully push it out of the way to, to pay attention to the sermon. Money's always on the mind. Um, and, and, and theology offers so many solutions for which I don't think we've really dug into well enough to apply good solutions to. Uh, so that's what's one way we'd like to continue the conversation. We would love to be able to speak to churches in, in, in every sort of function and way. I'll use a broad term more broadly. Sorry, houses of worship, right? Just all of us, no matter what mm -hmm. our theological perspective is, we have this commonality of economics. And uh, I think the faith traditions are, are uniform when read properly and, and read clearly uh, about the mutuality uh, from Mitch, from you and your elders to to my my European ancestors, uh, just wherever, wherever way we turn, done well, uh, we can integrate theology and, and economics. Uh, Aaron, can Sure, that's right on. We want to have more to tell in both of those directions. If you love business, money, great. There are things to tell to people of faith and to listen to, and vice versa. You know, if you love faith, religion, theology, there are things to tell and to listen to for money and business. And I think for Paul and I, well, we love more to tell. We also kind of like more to do. And really, that's the whole part three of our book is, you know, don't just have some ideas, but but put them into practice. And really, uh, the rubber meeting the road is mm -hmm. the hardest part, but also the most important part. So if you're intrigued by anything that's been said here, we would definitely encourage you to, to think about how it takes shape, you know, in actual living. Yeah. And we, I mean, we only touched the tip of the iceberg uh, today uh, as we talked together. Uh, the book is really, really outstanding. And I know what you're thinking, listeners. Okay. This is a book on economics, snooze. It is not. It is anything but that. It is intriguing. It needs to be on any serious Christian who wants to think about these important issues. It needs to be on your bookshelf. It is really, really that good. Better Capitalism by Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges. Guys, thanks for being guests today on Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much. So we're honored. Listeners, we thank you for tuning in this week. And until next week, keep living good faith.